Well, good morning. How are y'all doing? It's good to see you guys. Good to be here with you. My name is Trey Dove, and I am the Spiritual Formation Pastor at Huddle Bible Church, just in case you're new and I haven't had the chance to meet you. Welcome. We're excited that you've joined us for this final Sunday of Advent. So this is our fourth and final Sunday of Advent. Next Sunday, we'll be gathering together for Christmas for one service at the Lone Oak Barn as we celebrate the birth of Jesus, our Savior, the Messiah. It'll be sweet, so hopefully you'll join us. But today, we are wrapping up, again, this this Advent season and series that we've been in. And throughout this Advent season, we've been spending our time together on Sunday mornings looking at the various responses to the Incarnation, and we spend a lot of time in the Gospel of Matthew and a lot of time in the Gospel of Luke. Or, in other words, we've been looking at, during Advent, how those who were present at the birth of Jesus responded, right? And so in week one, we looked at Mary and Joseph and how, in what would have been a rather precarious situation, they responded with this extraordinary obedience, right? Both separately, individually, but then together as a couple, they responded responded in extraordinary obedience to the Lord. In week two, we looked at Luke chapter one and Luke chapter two and spent our time moving through the different songs that were sung at the arrival of Jesus, right? And so we looked at Elizabeth and Mary and Zechariah. We looked at the angels and what they sang in the field as they revealed themselves and the good news to the shepherds. And then we looked last but not least at Simeon, this old Israelite man, this faithful man who had just been waiting and longing at the temple for the arrival of the Messiah. God had made this promise that he would see him, and when Jesus arrives, he bursts forth into song. It was, man, just an incredible scene. And it becomes clear, I think, as we go through those passages, that that really any response to the incarnation of Jesus that does not excite worship within us is an insufficient response, correct? Correct. Like, we ought to sing, sing, sing because of the incarnation. And then in week three, we looked at the shepherds in the field receiving the angelic visitation, announcing the arrival of Jesus. They saw Jesus, and and again, they they worshiped and they sung, but then they, they just, they couldn't contain themselves. They went and told of what, rather, who they had just seen. And as we come up on our final Sunday of Advent, we're going to look at yet another response to the Incarnation. I will say, however, it's probably not the one you might expect the Sunday before Christmas. But nonetheless, our passage, I believe, captures and articulates with tremendous clarity and excitement the realities of Christmas morning. Additionally, the realities that we ourselves as followers of Jesus live in even now as we wait for the second Advent or the return of Jesus Christ. And so, the fourth and final response to the incarnation that we're going to address this morning is conflict. And so if you have your Bibles or a copy of the Scriptures, I invite you to meet me in Revelation 12. Revelation chapter 12. Perhaps not the Christmas passage you might have expected, but a Christmas passage nonetheless. Literally, first hour had one guy go, okay. It's like, yep, that's where we're going. Revelation 12. So uh, as you're flipping there, I do think there are some ground rules that we ought to set or some hermeneutical principles that we can lay out on the front end that just in general, if you decide after this that you're excited and you want to go back into the book of Revelation, some, some hermeneutical principles that will help you read the book of Revelation with some clarity, I think. I'm not, I'm, I am not suggesting that I'm going to give you all the answers if you follow these principles to the book of Revelation. I just think it'll help you out, all right? And so here's 
just a few, three principles for reading the book of Revelation. And the first is that Revelation is an apocalyptic book. Now, when we hear apocalyptic book or we hear apocalypse, we think doomsday, we think all, you know, things going crazy, end of the world, like that's kind of where our mind goes. But the fundamental conviction of the book of Revelation is that things are not as they seem. Things are not as they seem, or rather things are not only as they seem. Like some have suggested that the book of Revelation is actually an alternative reading on reality. Now, the word apocalypse literally means to unveil, to uncover, or to reveal, which is hence why the book is called Revelation, because there is an unveiling that is happening in this book. Like, if it helps, maybe, to imagine you're, you're at a play, right? A play where you've got the stage, and then, you know, you've got the, the curtains behind and to the side and all that kind of stuff, and you've got the, the main actors or the scene that's happening in front of you, and you kind of see what's going on. I wasn't in theater, so I'm doing a terrible job of explaining this, but no, Nonetheless, you've got, you know, the characters that you're meant to see on stage, and then all of a sudden, the the curtains behind them open up, and it doesn't disrupt the play. The play continues moving forward, but you actually, for the first time ever, get to see what's happening behind the scenes, behind the curtain, behind the stage. You get to see all the people and all the moving parts, everything that's happening, in addition to what you were already able to see. And so when you get to the book of Revelation, in this case, God gives the apostle John, while he's exiled on the island Patmos, this revelation, this apocalypse, this he pulling back the curtain of the cosmos as if to say, there's more that's happening than what your eyes can see or your ears can hear, more than you can touch. This is what apocalyptic literature is trying to do. It is trying to paint a picture of reality that goes beyond just what we're able to even sense or understand on our own, using numbers and colors and sights and sounds and all sorts of metaphors to evoke an emotional response and to rouse our minds. Daryl Johnson writes, Apocalyptic literature has a number of unique features. For example, people are often represented in the likeness of animals, thus the lamb and the beasts. Historical events are represented in the form of natural phenomena, thus earthquakes and floods, colors and numbers have meaning. And Eugene Peterson writes, This is St. John's work. He takes the old, everyday things of creation and salvation, of Father, Son, and Spirit, of world and flesh and devil that we take for granted, and he forces us to look at them and experience again, or maybe for the first time, their reality. So that's the first principle. The second principle is that the book of Revelation is a prophetic book. It's a prophetic book, which means that God is revealing to John and consequently his readers things that have happened, are happening, and things that will happen. Future things, future events, right? Five times in the book, this is referred to as the prophecy. In Revelation 1.1 and 22.6, kind of bookending the book, you've got the phrase, to show the things which must shortly take place. It's repeated in the beginning and the end of the book. But as Johnson, Daryl Johnson notes, the heart of biblical prophecy is not, look what's coming, but the heart of biblical prophecy is, thus saith the Lord. And so God speaks, and he's doing it in an authoritative way. He's declaring things, again, that were, that are, and are to come. And, and as he does so, prophecy requires a response from the people who hear it. So we're, we are meant to respond to this prophetic 
book. And then third, uh, and finally, the book of Revelation is a letter. It's a letter, and I think this is the most overlooked detail of the entire book, that John, the apostle, is writing to the seven churches in Asia as a pastor. He's writing to these churches that he knows well, and they know him well. He's writing to churches that he loved dearly and deeply, churches which, like John and the rest of the believers in the latter part of the first century, are enduring some remarkable persecution under the heavy hand of the Roman government. And so, just a little brief timeline, uh, in 65 AD, persecution of the early church began to really ramp up. It had been steadily increasing, began to ramp up in 65 AD. It got hotter in 67 AD, and then by the time you get to 70 AD, Jerusalem is ransacked, the temple is destroyed. And then you get to 96 AD, which is about... Most scholars kind of date the book of Revelation to 96 AD. By the time you get there, persecution has just increased more and more to the point where Peter, Paul, and Timothy have all been murdered for their faith in Jesus. All of them. John has been sent to an island, Patmos, an island where criminals and crooks and and people who opposed the Roman government, idolaters, were sent to die. They sent John there to die alone on an island while his brothers and sisters at the churches that he loved are back home suffering under the heavy hand of the Roman government. Under the emperor Domitian who, who declared in Rome all should worship him as king and lord and God. Like people were required to go into this temple that was created for the emperor and to make offerings to him as God. This is the context in which God is, is giving this revelation to John. This is the context in which John is writing to the seven churches. And I say all of this, I'm painting this contextual picture to say that to understand the book of Revelation, we have to begin with this principle that it cannot mean to us what it did not mean to them. And it cannot mean to us what it did not mean to them. The book of Revelation, like every other book in the Bible, was written to them and for us. It's written for our good. We certainly benefit from reading it as the people of God, but we are not the primary audience. And so our impulse, especially with the book of Revelation, is to think, okay, is what I'm seeing on the news, is this what John was talking about here? Or is this thing this? Or is this thing this? Or is this thing this? Like we, we, we start to freak out and we miss the point. We miss the point of the entire book, right? Because his audience would have understood what he was saying with more clarity than we do today because he's writing to encourage them. He's writing to build them up. He's writing to move them towards perseverance and faithfulness in the midst of persecution with one simple message, the lamb wins. Now that's good news for all of us but it was especially good news for the people he was writing to. And so yes, Caesar is king, but he is not king of kings. He is not Lord of lords. Rome might literally kill you, but Rome has not won and will not win. And so he uses images, metaphors, characters, numbers, all sorts of things that would have been understood and familiar with his initial original audience. It would have resonated with the men and women and children in Asia. And so it's on us then to figure out, okay, as best as we can, what might this have meant to them so that we can understand what it means for us? 
One of the ways we can do that is by growing in our understanding of the Bible as a whole. Like Eugene Peterson says, the Revelation has 404 verses. In those 404 verses, there are 518 references to earlier Scripture. In these 518 references to earlier Scripture, there is not a single direct quotation. That means that though St. John is immersed in Scripture and submits himself to it, he does not merely repeat it. It is, re- it is recreated in him. I do not read the Revelation to get additional information about the life of faith in Christ. I've read it all before in law and prophet and gospel and epistle. Everything in the Revelation can be found in the previous 65 books of the Bible. Now, I read the Revelation not to get more information, but to revive my imagination. I love that, and I hope that's the case for all of us this morning as we read Revelation 12. I hope that there's a revival of our imagination, especially as we consider this Advent season and the Christmas story. And so with that, we're going to look at Revelation 12. I'm going to read the first six verses, and here's what I'm going to ask. You don't have to do it. That's fine. But I'm going to ask you to just close your eyes, not to read along with me, but close your eyes. And, and as I read these words, I'm going to ask you to try to, in your mind's eye, paint a picture. Imagine what was John seeing as he wrote these words down. Okay, so this is Revelation 12, 1 through 6. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, Merry Christmas, right? Silent night, holy night, right? All that stuff. So, Here's what we've got. Um, we, we've got a couple of signs, a few characters. And so let's, let's jump in. Sign number one. Sign number one. What does John see? Well, uh, he says he sees a great sign. And the first great sign is a woman clothed with the radiance and splendor of the sun. And under her feet was the moon and on her head a crown with 12 stars. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, there's another story with similar elements that might come to mind. You might hear sun and moon and stars or 12 stars, and you might think of Genesis 37 where Joseph, the the child of Jacob, who would later be called Israel, has this dream where the sun and the moon and 11 stars bow down to him. The sun representing his father Jacob, the the moon representing his mother, and the 11 stars representing his 11 brothers. Well, what was significant about this particular family in the Old Testament? Well, this this is the family that from them would come the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, right? And so you might think, okay, who is this woman in Revelation 12? Is she Israel? Is she meant to represent Israel? And I think the answer is yes, but not only Israel, because I think she's also Eve. 
Like in Genesis 3, God declared that from the woman would come a child who would crush the head of the serpent. The the serpent who here in chapter 12 is portrayed as a dragon, right? He, He seems to have taken a unique interest in this woman and her child. And so in Genesis 4, Adam, he names his wife, the woman Eve, for she is the mother of life, right? A spiritual stake planted on the promises of God. But also I think she's Mary to make things more complicated. I think she represents Mary as well. Why would we think that? Because she's pregnant. And who is she pregnant with? Just some boy? Just some baby boy? Well, no, not just some baby boy, right? In fact, she's She's pregnant with a male child, but, but this male child is to be the one who is to rule all the nations with the rod of iron. This is from Psalm 2, which is a messianic psalm in which the Messiah is said to come and rule the nations with the rod of iron, enacting the justice and mercy of God. And so this woman is pregnant with the Messiah, just like Mary, right? And so is this woman Israel? Is this woman uh, uh, Eve? Is this woman Mary? I think the answer is yes. (laughs) Yes to all of it. Yes, of course. I think she represents the people of God. And in fact, we'll see she uh, even represents the church. We'll see that later on in chapter 12. And so she represents the people of God, beginning with Eve and then Israel, the faithful remnant of Israel depicted through Mary and the church. That's sign number one. Sign number two, we've got the dragon. Got this dragon, John says, he sees a sign. He identifies the dragon in verse 9 as the ancient serpent, one who, or who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And so this, this dragon is massive, red, has seven heads, ten horns on each head, seven diadems, which is, is just a, a, a crown, a type of crown. Uh, seven and ten are both numbers of completion or completeness in the Bible. And so you've got seven heads, I think, representing a symbol of his complete authority on earth. It's borrowed authority, but his complete authority on earth. You've got ten horns, a symbol of strength, depicting that there is no one on earth stronger than this dragon. And then the diadems, potentially a symbol of his wealth. And then John says that with one swing of his tail, you've got a third of the stars in heaven that fall. Now, if you were to say, Pastor Trey, is this, like, are you, like, is this for sure what this means? And I would say, I don't know, but I feel pretty good about this. It seems to make sense, right? So here's what we can depict from this dragon, though. He's powerful, he's vicious, he is influential, and his sight is set on destroying the offspring of the woman. He wants to kill this child. John says that he hovers and waits so that at the birth of the child he can devour it. And then in verse 5 we read that she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Now I love what Daryl Johnson writes here. I think it's really, really helpful and powerful. He says, the woman is a sign, the dragon is a sign, but not the child. Right? The woman points beyond herself to another reality. The dragon points beyond himself to another reality. But the child does not point beyond himself to another reality. He is the reality. And so we're not going to find a literal woman clothed in the sun. We're not going to find a literal dragon with seven heads and ten horns. But we are going to find a male child, a son. And so who is this male child? It's Jesus. Now in verse 5, what's fascinating 
is that John summarizes the entire earthly life and ministry of Jesus in a single sentence. Like you would think this is the most important part of the Christian faith and John gives a single sentence to the entire life of Jesus. His, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, all of it packaged into the boy was born and he was taken up to the throne of God. And that's it. And you wonder, okay, well, why is that? Well, I, I think it's because it's not simply Jesus' death and resurrection that's significant or important or necessary for us to be redeemed and reconciled with God. It's all of it. All of it matters. All of it is necessary. Like, uh, it was necessary that He would be born as He was, that He would take on flesh and be born in the likeness of men. It was necessary that He would live a life of perfect obedience to God the Father. It was necessary that He would die a substitutionary death on the cross for, for His own. It was necessary that He would be buried in a borrowed tomb, that He would raise in glory and power three days later, that He would ascend to the right hand of the Father, and that even now He sits there interceding for you and for me all of that was necessary all of it matters all of it like the book of hebrews articulates this so beautifully like if you go through the book the argument is just basically listen jesus is the true and better fill in the blank the true and better fill in the blank. Whatever you want to put in there, he's, he's the true and better. He's the fulfillment and he's better than all of it. Or Paul in the book of Romans says, listen, you, Adam, you remember Adam? You remember how he failed? The second Adam did not fail. He didn't fail. For the blood of bulls and goats and birds where they purified man temporarily, Christ's blood purifies indefinitely. Christ did not stay dead. God vindicated him. He raised him because he's innocent. And now, as he is, we too will be someday. He is the firstborn from among the dead. Because he rose, we will rise. The high priest of Israel, they would have to, to cleanse themselves and go into the temple and make offering for even their own sin. And then they would walk out and they'd sin again. And they have to do it over and over and over again. But Jesus didn't have to do that. He was the sacrifice. He was. And now he's the great high priest in heaven, again, pleading his own precious blood over the people of God. If you've placed your faith in him. Like if you look at verse 10, this is what John describes. He says, I hear a loud voice in heaven saying, the salvation, the power, and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the power or by the word of their testimony for they loved not their lives even unto death. And so the serpent of old Satan, this great dragon, he accuses. That's what he does. It's his M.O. He's been doing it for a long, long, long time. And on his lips are a multitude of reasons why you are so undeserving and why you are so unworthy of God's love and God's grace. And let's be honest, he's probably not wrong. Right? He's probably not wrong. In fact, He's probably mostly right, and my guess is that you know it. I know it. Like, how many of us have ever sinned, you know, let's just say that sin that you've had for 20 years that you can't seem to beat. That sin. Let's say the last time you sinned that, you hear the whisper in your head, gosh, do you even, do you actually love Jesus? <laughs> or you hear the whisper, this again, huh? You just can't seem to shake it. Or you hear the whisper, you know what? God is probably done with you. I think this is the straw that broke the grace of God for you. Like I, 
I wonder if anyone's ever heard the enemy say, I've got 10 reasons why God shouldn't have saved you. And you know what I would say? I would say, that's it? You got 10, that's it? And come up with 20 right now. And yet, what does God do? He pulls back the veil. He pulls back the curtain. He says, John, I want you to come in here. I want you to see what's going on. I want you to see that there was a son who was born and the dragon tried to kill him and he failed. He's been swept up into my presence. He sits on the throne. This is ultimate reality. That the accuser might be right about me. That I've given God a million reasons. He needed one. I've given him a million reasons to just pour out his wrath on me for eternity. And yet... It's the life and the blood of the boy, born of the woman, the seed promised generations ago that redeems and secures me. Like Nancy Guthrie writes, we, we know what humanity has done throughout the ages. More than that, we know what we have done throughout our lifetimes. The devil had a good argument and ground to stand on until Jesus dealt with the very real guilt of the elect at the cross. From then on, the accuser had no case. He's been barred from any future appearances, thrown out of the courts of heaven. Now, I don't want to lose sight of what we're talking about because, again, this is a Christmas passage. This is a Christmas text. Like Matthew 2, we read in in verses 1 through 3 that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And Herod heard this and he was troubled. And so as the story goes, Herod's like, why don't you go find him for me? And so the wise men go find him. And then an angel appears to the wise men and says, do not go back to Herod. He is tricking you. He's deceiving you. And so they, they're like, got it. They, they head out. They go a different direction. Mary and Joseph are, are also instructed to take Jesus to Egypt until Herod dies. And so they obey. And then in verse 16, it says, Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. And so the arrival of Messiah certainly provoked songs of worship and joy. We looked at that two weeks ago, but it also provoked sorrow and grief because it provoked evil to action. Like the birth of Jesus provoked evil to action. And, and John wants his readers to recall this story from the Gospel of Matthew. And he says, here's heaven's interpretation of what went down. Herod is an agent of evil. He is the dragon's instrument. But get this, the dragon failed. He failed. Eugene Peterson writes, this is not the nativity story that we grew up with, but it is the nativity story all the same. Jesus' birth excites more than wonder. It excites evil. Herod, Judas, Pilate, ferocious wickedness is goaded to violence by this life. And why would that be the case? Well, I think it's because of what God promised, promised in Genesis 3.15 when he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so while the, the birth of Jesus, it provokes evil to action, the birth of Jesus also affirms the faithfulness of God. He keeps his promises. Now, I don't... 
I don't suppose, I don't believe that Satan knew exactly when the Messiah would come or who he would be, and I think that's why we see him killing over and over and over throughout the Bible. Like, I think that's why when, when Eve gave birth to two sons, the eldest killed his younger brother. Cain killed Abel as an instrument of evil. I think that's why we see Pharaoh killing an entire generation of Israelite boys in the book of Exodus. I think that's why Saul hunts David down for the majority of his life. It's because Satan's MO has been to kill and kill and kill. And he knew, he knew a boy was coming to crush his head. And so he killed and killed and killed. And yet, when the Son of God came, he tried again. But the boy lived and was taken to the throne room of God. So now we get to verses 7 through 12, and I'm going to go through um, the rest of this a little bit more quickly. Um, This is what verse 7 says. Now, war war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And so here's what John intends his audience to take away from the portion of this vision. That after the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father, Satan was bounced out of heaven. Like the word thrown down literally means bounced. So whatever image you've got in your head, that's great. He was literally bounced out of heaven by God and his angels. And and there's rejoicing in heaven because of that. And yet there's also lament and sorrow in heaven because the dragon is angry. His aggression is is intensifying, not subsiding. And the question is, who will his aggression be directed at? So in verse 13, when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and a times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood, but the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, which is who? Those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And so... If you sit here this morning as a follower of Jesus, you're his target. It's you. You are the one that his aggression is aimed at. He he cannot devour the child. He failed. And so now he will settle for you. And and, and that might be something that you hear that and you're like, oh, you know, you kind of tense up, you kind of tighten up. But I think it's important that we keep this portion of the book of Revelation, we keep this portion Uh, intact with the message of the whole, which is in verse 20. 
when the thousand years, I'm sorry, uh, chapter 20, and when the thousand years had ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And so, like at the end of John's vision, he's, he sees a day in which the dragon who's been bounced from heaven, uh, who's been bound by God for a time, who is seeking even now to steal, kill, and destroy the people of God, who even now is lying and accusing and devouring, John sees a day when that dragon is thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. He sees a day when all who sided with the dragon in heaven and on earth will be judged and cast out of God's loving presence and those who belong to Jesus will be ushered into what John describes as a new heaven and a new earth. Like in chapter 21, he writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, and I, and I want you, like for all that might confuse us in the book of Revelation, I don't want you to miss this. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And the one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. In Don Carson's book, um, the God who is there, he writes this, he's speaking about World War II. He says, On D-Day, June 6, 1944, the Western Allies landed on the beaches of Normandy and in three days dumped 1.1 million men and tons and tons of war material. There was a second Western front. Anybody with half a brain in his head could see that the war was over. But does that mean that Hitler said, Oops, I miscalculated and pleaded for peace? No. What came next was the Battle of the Bulge, where he almost made it right through to the coast of France again, except he ran out of fuel, and so there followed the Battle of Berlin, which was one of the bloodiest of the entire war. So the war was not over yet. But a year later, the war finally ended in Europe, after the combatants had navigated this massive gap between D-Day and V-E Day. And then he, he now connects that to the life of the Christian, where he says... That is our D-Day, the coming of Jesus, his cross and resurrection. After rising from the dead, Jesus declares, according to the Gospel of Matthew, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. But does that mean the devil says, oops, I miscalculated, I had better plead for peace? No, what it means is you have some of the fiercest fighting left because Jesus 
has not yet defeated all of his enemies. And so, Christian, this is exactly what the season of Advent exists to remind us of, that you and I, as followers of Jesus, live in that space between D-Day and V-E Day. That Christ has come, the baby was born, the dragon failed, he's been bounced from heaven, he's bound, but he is angry. And he wants nothing more than to see the people of God destroyed because he can't get to the sun. That's where we live, and yet we have this hope that there will come a day, a second advent, when the sun will return, and when he does, he will do away with evil, he'll do away with the enemy, and we'll get to be with him for all eternity. That's our hope. That's the promise. That's what Advent is. It's looking back, and then it's looking forward. And the aim of, of, of God's revelation to John and John's letter to the seven churches is, I know Rome is scary. <laughs> I don't want you to turn inward like a turtle going in a shell. Don't do that. Persevere. Stay faithful. Because Rome might kill you, but Rome does not win. The Lamb has won. And so, I actually think the most helpful thing as we wrap up this Advent season would be to borrow from um, my fellow pastors from the last three weeks. And so I think the first thing that we can do is obey. You want to resist the devil? Obey. Obey the commands of God. Obey because you love him. Obey because he's your king. Obey because he knows what's best for you. Obey because he is worthy of your obedience. He saved you. Like John says, the dragon has fixed his focus and aggression on those who obey the commands of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And I just, I thought this week, like, I wonder how many Christians have completely evaded the enemy's attacks simply because they pose no threat to him. Like, I wonder how many, how many Christians have no idea what spiritual warfare really kind of feels like and looks like because they haven't experienced it because the enemy is like, they're not a threat. Not scared of them. They don't obey. I don't want to be in that category. And I don't want you to be in that category. And so we obey. We fight the devil through obedience to Jesus. The second is that we worship. We worship. Like two weeks ago, we saw the most natural response to the incarnation was worship. In our passage today, there's a multitude who's worshiping and singing. Why? Because he's worthy of that. He's worthy of your praise. He's worthy of your song. He's worthy of every breath you expel with, with every syllable sung. He's worthy of your attention, your devotion, your affection. He's worthy of it all. And we fight the enemy through worship. As we worship the one true king. And then third and finally, through witness. You know what? You know what the great dragon hates more than anything? When you go and tell people about Jesus and they believe it and the kingdom of God grows and grows and grows, oh, that fires him up. Fires him up. His worst nightmare is to see the kingdom of God expand as more and more people receive the grace of God made available in Christ. And so may we be emboldened, church, and moved towards obedience, worship, and witness this Christmas and every day after until Jesus Christ, the King who's already come, comes once again. And together would we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this incredible reality. I, I thank you that you're a God who 
um, graciously reveals to us, graciously reveals not just yourself to your people, but reveals what's happening. God, that there are things that we can't see. There are things that we don't understand, uh, realities at work. And yet we, we've got this incredible hope that while there is this, this enemy of God who's, who's bent on destroying your church, we know, we know that the lamb wins. We know that, that the, that sweet babe who was born in a manger, we worship and sing about and to God. We know that that sweet boy would grow, would live in perfect obedience, would die a substitutionary death, would rise from the grave, defeating sin and death and Satan, crushing the head of the serpent, pulling out the fangs from the snake, would bind him as he ascended to the throne to sit at your right hand. Even now it's his blood that is is pleaded over us. And so as the enemy works to distract, to discourage, to, to um, accuse us, to, to thwart your activity in the world and in the church, God, we, we cling to this message that there is a son who has come and will come again. And so we thank you for that reality. Help us to be a people who are not frightened but emboldened by your word. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to move into a time of offering together. We practice open communion. Uh, did I say offering? I meant communion. You guys get that, though. Um, so we're going to, we're going to uh, move into a time of communion together. Um, as a church, we practice open communion, which simply means if you're a follower of Jesus, we welcome you to the table and to participate in this supper with us. And so with that, as the band plays, you're free to move around the room, come and receive the elements, take them back with you, and then we will take the, the, the meal together. Well, uh, in Revelation 19, uh, you get this... Um, Right after Revelation 18, which is bleak, if you read it, it is bleak, bleak, bleak. But then, and then John kind of shifts, right? It's as if God says, hey, look over here now. And John says, here's what I see. What I see is this feast, this meal, this marriage supper of the Lamb where uh, Jesus and his bride are together dining and feasting and, and you know, I wonder, is there a table? If so, how big is the table? How long can I like see, like see and hear what's happening at the other end of the table? Or is it as if no one, you know what I mean? Like I just wonder, what's that, what's that meal like? But regardless, the reality is, is that one day we, with all of God's people, will find out because we'll be there. At the second advent, when Christ comes again, we will be there with him at this incredible feast, this marriage feast. And, and this, this table that we partake in now is a, a reminder of, like, like have you ever thought, and, and I hope this isn't irreverent, but have you ever thought, man, that's not a lot of cracker, right? That's not a lot of bread, or that's not a lot of, that's not a lot of cup, right? Well, it's not meant to be a lot because the feast is coming, right? It's a reminder of that day. And so I, I love what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11 when he's talking about the Lord's table. He says, As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's what Advent is. 
It's living in the space between. He has died, he has risen, and he is coming back again. And so church, this is the body of Christ, broken for you. Take and eat. And this cup is the blood of the covenant poured out for you. Take and drink. Let's sing together in response. Well, church, as we go out for our last week of Advent, as you know, next Sunday, again, we'll be gathering together to celebrate the birth of Jesus. And my encouragement to you is, hopefully this makes sense, don't be too quick to rush to the manger this week, right? And and by that I mean, like, we have a week until Christmas, and, and, you know, you're probably like, yeah, that's not a lot of time to buy the gifts I got to buy and to, you know, cook all the meals and go to the grocery store and I got to send out the Christmas cards or they're going to show up after Christmas and then are they New Year's cards? Like, there's all these things that kind of speed the week up and kind of make us, like, rush to Christmas Day where we're like, we made it, (laughs) right? The things are done. And the season of Advent is historically for the church a time where we slow down where we pause and we remember that we're not home yet, that our King has come and we're excited to celebrate His coming in a week, but until then we look for and long for the day when He comes again. That's what Advent is all about. And so my encouragement to you is, I know you've got a lot to do, so do we, and that's okay, but find time, find opportunities to be slow, intentionally slow, intentionally sit in that space between D-Day and V-E-Day, right? First Advent and Second Advent. Because in the First Advent, like, hell was moved to action, right? And, And we should not lose sight of that. We should not be distracted by all of the stuff that typically comes with Christmas. That's what he wants. That's what the enemy wants, right? But, but there's also a day coming when Hell will be vanquished finally and fully and forever, and we long for and look for that day. And so try to be slow this week and remember that we are not home, and then on Christmas sing and rejoice and feast and laugh and have a ton of fun because that future hope that we have is is precisely because our King has come, and that's what we celebrate on Christmas. And so with that, grace and peace. Hope you have a great Sunday and a great week. We'll see you on Saturday.